You're listening to 515, the Ultraman podcast, the show that invites you into the lives of people who make up the Ultra family. Here's your host for these conversations, co-race director of Ultraman Canada, Larry Ryan. Thank you, MJ. In today's episode, I will be speaking with the legendary race announcer, Steve King. And I will be giving you an athlete profile on one of our 2021 Ultraman Canada athletes. His name is Rad Chad Bentley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my very first podcast. I'm not going to waste your time now telling you what this podcast is about and giving you a 20-minute biography on me. You'll get to know me through these conversations. And since you found your way here, you know what I'm offering. So let's get right into my first conversation. Jay-Z and Beyonce think that they are multi-hyphenated entrepreneurs, but have a listen to the list of our guests today. An athlete competing as a race walker, triathlete, and endurance runner, a race announcer, a color commentator, a voiceover narrator, a race creator, a race director, a publisher, an author, a book editor, a poet. He has played himself as an actor, a stockbroker, a private investigator, a motel manager, a registered clinical counselor, a creator and instructor of online courses. I think it is safe to say that he is a YouTuber, a musician, a justice of the peace, a bag designer, and a board game creator. Today I am speaking with the legend, the voice of Ultraman, coming to us from his home in Penticton, British Columbia, which coincidentally is the home of Ultraman Canada, Mr. Steve King. Welcome, and thank you for being my very first guest. I am super appreciative of your time. Thank you, Larry. I'm totally honored, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I kind of wanted to start off at the, at the end of that list. Uh, can you tell us how you became a board game creator? Oh, well, that, that was uh, quite a while ago. In fact, it was just uh, pretty much uh, right after the 1986 Iron Man. As you know, from 1983, we had had an Ironman distance race here, but it formally became Ironman Canada in 1986. And at that time, Valerie Silk was the head uh, of the World uh, Triathlon Corporation, uh, looking after, of course, uh, Ironman. And uh, so I approached her with the idea of doing so, but they had a very um, difficult license uh, because of Ironman that... uh, uh, it's a cartoon amongst other things in Japan. And so they were limited as to what they could do in terms of licensing. Uh, but she said with a very restricted number, I could go ahead with a board game. And so I produced a, a thousand of them. So it is a limited edition. Uh, we gave about 500 away to kids in scores and the others are out there somewhere in the universe. But it's interesting you had mentioned that because literally two or three days ago, a lady phoned me up to find out if it was any of any value. I said, I have no idea, to be honest with you. So she was going to put it on eBay. I've had a few people over the years uh, ask me about it, and I've found a few extra pieces here and there, but uh, there may be one floating about on eBay. That's all I know. I've, I know some people have uh, found them in rummage sales, but hopefully some people have got them and still play them. Yeah. But there's been amazing advances since that time. If anyone has the game and you see how it plays out, uh, there's been a lot of changes in the sport. But I, I was still very proud of the way it turned out. 
Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. So do you, do you swim, bike, and run through the game? Uh, what, how, is there anything that it might be like that you could compare it to? For well, the yeah, to? It, it was a multi-sided dice, as all dice are, but this was a very special dice use. We had the dot players uh, on a board, so we had a swim course, a bike course, uh, and a run course on there with, a, with transitions and everything. And it, it was about the roll of the dice. There was some luck involved, but uh, you also had to think it through. There was some strategy as well. Ah, so like a real race. I think so. <laughs> One of the other things that you had on there is that you are a justice of the peace. I, I was. You were, um, okay. Yes. Uh, and, that was for five years until uh, things changed and everything became centralized. So I was uh, like the magistrate would be in England or elsewhere, uh, justice of the peace. People tend to think it was a marriage commissioner. In British Columbia, they're not the same thing. Yeah, I was a court services, so if someone got arrested outside of the hours of 4.30 till 8.30 in the morning, then I would be called in. Oh, yeah, I was, I was wondering what, how that worked, what kind of powers you had as a, as a JP. Yeah, I was sorry to lose that in a sense that um, I enjoyed it because it's sort of interconnected with my job somewhat. Um, but uh, what, what happened was all the JPs in British Columbia uh, got centralized, so now... People do not appear directly in front of a JP. They appear as we are doing online. Did you, ha did you perform any weddings? Uh, I, I have actually performed weddings, but anyone can do so as long as you have a marriage commissioner there as well to sign the forms. So I've had a number of friends over the years, uh, including some Ultraman couples as well. Uh, Kevin and Bob uh, Kutcher are actually performed the ceremony there and for the uh, Beckers, Catherine Corder Becker and Kevin Becker. Oh. But they, they had a, a second marriage uh, in Hawaii after setting a Guinness World Records for having done uh, five together, including a couple in Canada and uh, three on the Big Island. They are an amazing couple. I had the pleasure of meeting them at Ultraman Canada one year and then again at Ironman Lake Placid uh, a couple years later, and they, they are a fabulous couple. Looking at you as an athlete, I know a lot of people think of you as, as the voice of Ironman and the voice of Ultraman, but you've had a great uh, career as an athlete as well. You've been a, um, a world-class athlete as a race walker, a triathlete, and an endurance runner. Recently, um, I'm sure you heard, the, the IOC has uh, decided they're going to cut the 50K race walk from the uh, 2024 games in Paris because they want to come up with a more gender equitable race that they can do. Now myself, I'm, I'm a little concerned with that and that they think that women maybe can't do 50K race walk, but they are going to put break dancing into the 2024 games. So maybe they've just like jumped in the DeLorean and gone back in time or something. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what's happened there, but uh, I'm wondering what are your thoughts on, on this and uh, did the IOC actually consult you for your opinion? Uh, no, to the last part of it, but thank you for thinking that they might have even considered such a thing. But uh, no, and, and just to clarify, I was never a world-class race walker. I was a, a decent uh, long-distance race walker. Uh, my greatest uh, claim to fame was getting second twice at the Stock Exchange London to Brighton, which is about 52, 53 miles, and uh, winning the uh, uh, NEAAU 50-mile uh, championships in the States. That was in New Jersey quite a few years ago. Uh, but the speeds they have today 
I would be absolutely nowhere. It's phenomenal. But the women have proven themselves. There are plenty of women that are doing anywhere from like 412 to 430 at 50K, which is exceptional, absolutely exceptional. Would have won yeah. many Olympic Games up until like the uh, 68, 72, something like that. So we have to bear in mind just how fast these guys are. And when you consider the leading race walkers now can go through the marathon in three hours and continue for another five miles. Uh, and our own Evan Dunphy, one of the very best in the world with a yeah. recent third place at the World Championships. It's just so saddening that what was the longest uh, race in the Olympic Games in terms of track and field is now going to lose itself, unfortunately. Um, but there's all sorts of sports that are coming up with uh, mixed gender events and race walking was hoping they'd consider that because women have proved their mettle time and again when it comes to way beyond 50ks as well not just at race walking but running particularly obviously yeah that's true um yeah and you know i got turned on to uh the long distance race walk when i went down to rio in 2016 to cheer on the canadians and particularly evan dunphy listeners out there if you want a good uh Twitter to follow. Evan has a great Twitter, nice and political around the racing world. So that's that's something to follow. And and maybe if you're listening, Evan, um, it would be nice for you to come out one year and do a uh, relay team at Ultraman, and we could watch you race walk the the double marathon. I think that yeah. would be exciting to see. Well, he's also a ph phenomenal runner, as you know. He's a seventy minute uh, half marathoner, so um, he's just a fabulous, world class athlete. That's for sure. Now, I know that um, so you were saying earlier that you were doing some of these um, longer races. You got first at the U.S. 50-mile championship and that you did a Centurion race, 100 miles in under 24 hours. What the heck does that do to a person's body? It depends on the person, depends how fit they are. I was quite young for someone doing a 100-miler. At the time, I think I was 23 and uh, a lot of people were saying, you're far too young to be doing 100 milers. They wouldn't say that nowadays. As we know, there's lots of younger people doing way beyond that and uh, doing Ultraman-type races as well in terms of triathlon. Um, but the one I did was the Leicester to Skegness. And uh, I, I wanted to become a member of that club. It's quite an exclusive club. I think they're up to maybe 1,200 uh, in the UK now, and it's around the world, but the Centurions Club is well respected. And so I wanted to do that. And no one in my uh, club at that time, I was a member of the Ilford Athletic Club, had done it for quite a few years. So it was neat to be a person who uh, got it going again. I think it was like 1972 or something when I finished it. And then we've had about five or six more club members since then that have completed it. Uh, but again, you build up like anything else. There are plenty of people who have done a hundred milers nowadays and uh and if if you learn from the people who have gone before uh then you can get through these things reasonably comfortably but again terrain makes a difference as well weather conditions make a big difference uh nutrition makes a massive difference but certainly people are putting in the mileage and know how to train these days uh people didn't tend to have coaches we had track and field coaches but we certainly uh didn't have people who were coaching you for long distance races yeah yeah and and obviously yeah the people listening to this podcast are probably going to be um long distance runners and avid uh ultra marathoners and i'm sure that they find that you know they get to that place of pain and then they can 
they can get through and endure, but uh, yeah. I can only imagine with the hips going side to side that <laughs> that has got to be that much worse when you're doing 100 miles. Well, it look it looks more um, painful maybe than it actually is. It's actually quite a natural thing because it's a technical sport. So once you get into it, you realize it it looks funny. Let's put it that way. I'll give you that. It does look a bit awkward, but uh, it really is quite the technical sport. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so as a triathlete, um, obviously you've done a number of races. In 1984, you were sixth at Ironman Canada and second in your age group, which is just amazing. And then um, 1994, you came second at Ultraman Canada. That was a, a little bit different race at the time. The distances were a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. It was the first race outside of Hawaii. When you were taking part in UMC at that time, did you feel the Kokua, Aloha, Ohana that came from the island was part of the early days of Ultraman in Canada? I think it was, and I think it even began slightly before that. Uh, as you know, it came here in 1993, uh, but Lynn Van Dove, who had been very much involved, of course, in Ironman Canada since its inception, uh, she also put on an event called Earth Journey, and there was sort of similar distances, and it went on the fabulous Kettle Valley Railway, which is a, a dodgy place to run at times, but uh, it was fabulous according to those people who did it. And In fact, Gary Shields, who won the World Ultraman Championships uh, three consecutive times, he came over from the Big Island to actually participate in that. Uh, but in 1994, what had happened, the, the first race was 93, but in 94, we had a serious fire as well. So we could not use Skaha Lake. Uh, so we, because of the uh, bombers coming down, the water bombers, and they needed to pick up water uh, to utilize for the fire, so we had to devise a different course for the swim. And so we ended up doing uh, 12 laps in uh, Okanagan Lake. And that was going from the Peach to the SS Sycamus, for those people who know that. It's just shy of a kilometer. And uh, so we did that. And the reason we did that, it was probably, I would say, 11 kilometers or something, was because we had put previously the Skaha Lake Ultra Swim as part of the Ultraman, and that's 11.8 kilometers. So we were trying to do something around that same distance. That's um, something that's very common in the summer in British Columbia. We do have those forest fires. Um, back in 2019, we had to uh, adjust the course again, uh, most recently due to a forest fire for the, for the bike course. And Ironman, of course, has gone on with some really heavy smoke from fires and and that's something that's just part of the elements and part of the race when you when you come to Canada and are part of that race. Well, you remember well uh, Brad Sawa leaping off the boat that he had to pick up to come from Penticton. And he gets there and he, he hears that there's a fire on the Richter Pass. So things were adjusted very, very quickly. And athletes and crews and organizers have to do that. And, and the crews were, were just amazing to be able to adjust to those things, I think. And, and the athlete mentally... Suddenly they think they know the course and then they, they have to, you know, adjust. So be prepared for that if you're coming to race at Ultraman Canada, I think, or Ironman Canada. Yes, and now we have exactly the same format as they do on the Big Island and elsewhere. And just to reiterate, the reason I mentioned that again about 94 is because we split them up uh, one discipline per day. So we had the swim on day one, 
And then the bike was uh, a double century, 200 miles, as opposed to the 260 when you combine them today. So, yeah, the, the, the race has evolved and, and changed a little bit. At you as an endurance runner, um, I, I looked through the, the resume again, and it looks like you were racing endurance races over four different decades um, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. Um, you've done the 50-mile championships and set a Canadian record in 1979 in the U.S., the 1989 Western States, 100 miler, um, 1997 winner of the inaugural Haney to Harrison 100 kilometer. That was a great race here in the lower mainland of uh, British Columbia. That's unfortunately no more. The 1999 Comrades Marathon in South Africa, which I'm sure is probably one of your highlights. And then in 2001, fourth overall at Badwater in Death Valley. I don't know if maybe it's one of those or maybe something else that you've done, but what are one of the things that stand out for you as one of the life-changing experiences? Because I think the people who are doing these events and who are listening to this podcast, you're, you're doing it to find out what's that life-changing experience that I can have in racing. And, and one of the things I want this podcast to do is have people share what these things mean so that more people can be inspired to, to go out and try them. So, so what was yours? What's, what's the big inspiration in your endurance career? Well, I would say there were two that really stand out for me. Uh, the f- first would be um, the Comrades Marathon. That was I, everything I dreamt of. In fact, on my website, I, I wrote a story about that because it had been a dream for well over 25 years. I had heard about that race uh, uh, since I, you know, I, I was running, um, the history of it always amazed me. The, the names that would pop up and the and the sort of speed these guys were able to run. But then hearing more about the course and like 33 hills and every year it changes direction and the sheer volume of people. When I did it, I think there were like uh, 14,000 people that were doing it, and now there's around 20,000. You were given 11 hours in which to complete it. Now I think it's 12 hours, uh, but they're exact. I mean, there's some of the stories, not only of the winners, but the final person gets almost as much publicity because they have these guys, I think they're rugby team members, they they hold hands here and they block you. If you're one second off that time, they literally block you. So there's a, a lot at stake, but it's a fabulous event because um, it's covered live on TV for the entire duration, which is stunning. You imagine if we had 12 hours of hockey going on here. I mean, people would love it, but it's, it'd be unusual. <laughs> hockey Unless day in Canada. COVID conditions or something, yeah. Uh, and that race turned out to be absolutely everything. We planned a big holiday around it as well. Uh, but I'd had some support from some Ironman competitors, a dear friend of mine, Rob Leverton, got s- stirred some people up to sort of support me there. So I really appreciate that because Rob was originally from South Africa and he had done the event himself. So uh, I was thrilled to be at the start line. It was an ultraman uh, um, who uh, was there, Brian Keeling was his name. He had come and done Canada and he invited me to come there and uh, stay with he and his wife, uh, Merrin, and we did so. Uh, we got there to the race start and we couldn't even get into the starting corral because it was blocked off. So we had to wait till a lot of people went past and then they allowed us to jump over a fence and get going. <laughs> My in- initial memory was also of um, 
but by this time, the uh, colored people could do the race. And that was so stirring because they had been banned for so many years. And they played special songs, a Simbonanga, a Johnny Clegg uh, song with Savuka, if you've ever heard that. It was so stirring. A Simbonanga, a Simbonango Mandela Tina, La Pecona. And uh, Nelson Mandela was there, so uh, again, it was just fabulous to be a part of that. And then the good thing is I accomplished all my goals, but I never forget the million people that were lining the routes, uh, 30,000 people in the stadium at the finish line. It was everything you could dream of, and my race was a good race. I was the top Canadian. I wanted to get top 10 in my division, which I did, and, and uh, I broke seven and a half hours, and that had been my goal. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Now, when you say a million people, is that an exaggeration? No, it literally is not. Um, my wife could not get to the front of the crowd in three or four places. She stopped because they were three or four deep. So yeah. she was waving at me and I could hear her yelling. And uh, that made the difference when I could look over. But it was just a mass of people almost the entire way. Amazing. Amazing. I can only imagine. Um, and, and I think one of the things that you, you said there that, that stood out for me is you were talking about how it was your connection to these other Ultraman and Ironman people that helped you to get there. And, and it, it seems to me that that's what the whole Ultra family is about is there's always someone that you, can, that you can call up and say, look, I'm thinking about doing this event. What do you know? And they will give you all of the advice that they have and a place to stay and a cooler or whatever you need, right? Like, yeah. Absolutely. That is the family, the Johanna that people talk about, where you've got a lot of people who have done the event before and they want to crew for somebody or people who love to crew. Look at yourself. You, you enjoy crewing. Yeah. And then after a number of years, people have heard about people like yourself. And so you're in great demand. And it gives the ability for each of us to get to know each other in, in our own uh, communities, our own countries. There are people who have traveled all over the world doing different events, and they're not necessarily going there to do a triathlon. They're going there to visit with friends. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the family, I think, is, is such a, an amazing part of, of the whole thing. You also mentioned bad water. So oh, right. I definitely yes. want Tell to mention that water. because um, bad water was such a, a very special event for me. I was... Uh, I was injured and things weren't improving and I knew I was probably getting to the end of my career. So uh, being a counselor, I sort of had to talk with myself about that. And I, I sort of posed the question to myself, if you, if, you, um, if you were to quit in the next little while, would you have any regrets? Would there be an event that you would regret not doing? And it immediately, literally within seconds, uh, the bad wall to 135 came to mind. And... Uh, I, I'd known, the, the weird thing is, I picked up a book uh, by Rich Benio a couple of years earlier, and it was uh, the Death Valley 300. He and another gentleman had been the first people to not only do Death Valley, uh, but to go back again. And he wrote this book, but I chose not to read it because I was scared that if I read it, I would then want to go out and do it. But the weirdest thing happened. I was commentating at the Royal Victoria Marathon, as it was then, and Rich Benio was a guest of honor, um, along with his wife. And, and uh, so Rich and Rhonda were there. And I said to him, if I were to do bad water, is there any chance you and Rhonda would be willing to crew for me? So again, it comes back to crew. And he said, yes. I, so why don't you enter? So 
that's what happened. I entered. They were my crew along with uh, my wife and two other friends. And uh, it, it was the most incredible experience ever. It was just something very special. I would say as opposed to a race experience, to me, that was a spiritual experience. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about how that would uh, play out then for you as a, as a spiritual experience. Well, because I knew I hadn't been able to do the training I would have wanted, it was very limited uh, because of my injuries. I had major knee problems, um, but I knew I had this history, this cellular memory, so to speak, from years of doing uh, long-distance events or training over the years. And I also love the heat. However, the heat down there is something different. We're looking at temperatures, you know, 125, 130 degrees. Um, I was not used to that. And so... It, even though I went out locally and did a few long walks and occasional jog, um, it's hard to prepare your body and your mind. Uh, but I, I knew I could dig deep if I needed to based on my history. And so I asked Rich, I said, do you still have the clothing you wore from your 300-mile journey? He said, yes. I said, any chance you could bring that with you? So I ended up using this long sleeve thing as well. Um, but during the nighttime, that's when it really started to open up as a spiritual experience for me because we all got lights and all you could see sometimes a stream of lights. Getting through the, the, um, the first, I'd say, 12 hours was the toughest probably because of the heat of the day. But at nighttime, even going up some of the three major passes, uh, the, the heat was still way up there. It was in the uh, high 90s even. Yeah. Uh, and so... But what happens is you've got the silence, and that silence was amazing. And then out of the blue, I, I'm looking up and I'm seeing shooting stars. I must have seen half a dozen of those. And then there was a jets that were in training at nighttime. They come swooping down, and, and it's mind-blowing I, I at times. remember that as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it really is something else. And then, of course, the closer you get and you, you're suddenly uh, maybe at Lone Pine and you're looking up at Mount Whitney, I thought I had it made in the shade as I was uh, coming into Lone Pine. If someone had said to me, uh, what do you think you could do or how are you doing at this point? I would have said, not too bad at all. I'm really happy. But then with um, about 15 miles to go, I, I sat down for a moment and could not get up. My knees seized right up. Oh. So I had reflected on quickly. I'd seen a, a, a film called Running to the Sun uh, about the Death Valley event. And there were two sisters in that uh, Angelica and Barbara, and uh, I'd seen them, or one of them, using ski poles. So I, did, I had decided to take ski poles with me just in case. And as, as I tried to get up and realized I couldn't, I asked someone to get me the ski poles. And I managed to walk on them for quite a while until a friend of mine, as we're going up the hill, um, my friend Murray Coates said to me, Steve, you look like you could stand up on your own right now you know, why don't you try it? So I handed him the ski poles and I was able then to race walk my way as best I could to the finish line because it's 13 miles just going straight up. That, that last part is, is killer. Yeah. 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 yeah I remember because I, I was uh, there again as a crew with my ex-wife, Lucy Ryan. And um, yeah, some of those spiritual experiences that you're talking about, I mean, even as the crew person there, I maybe even took it in a little bit more than she did because she was, you know, hallucinating and having all those troubles and she had a few troubles along the way. But yeah, I remember going into that one valley and 
you, all you can see across is the the lights of the cars following their athletes up the mountain on the other side and this it, there were some amazing times out there in the in the quiet and the and in the Star Wars set I believe part of the Star Wars movie was out there in one of those little desert scenes just outside of Lone Pine that's where they used to film a lot of the cowboy movies as well in my day job uh, I'm a high school PE teacher as, as you know and um, I've literally had a chance to coach thousands of athletes uh, in my in my time at both in school and in community um, coaching. And I, I found out that we have something in common is that um, for about six years, I was coaching in Special Olympics. I was coaching uh, floor hockey in the winter and softball in the summer. And I saw on your website that uh, you were coaching a special uh, oh, athlete named Fred Johnson who went all the way to the World Games. He did and, indeed. And yeah. can you maybe share a little bit about uh, what that experience like as being the coach now and not necessarily the athlete and, and what can you get out of being the coach and, uh, and that particular experience maybe with, with Fred? Well, thank you for bringing that up. Actually, I don't know if you can see on a wall behind me, but there's a photo I've got of him actually leading in the 400 meters. He ended up winning gold at the World Championships. But it was a fascinating story because um, I believe sometimes that there's a reason for something that happens to us that we can't quite see at the time. And I was injured. And every time I've gotten injured, I've always thought, okay, um, let's work on the basis that maybe there's something else I'm meant to be doing at this time. Within a couple of days of this injury, I received a phone call uh, from the organization that looks after Special Olympians here in town. And they said, Steve, we've got this young man, uh, his name's Fred Johnson. Um, we believe he has some running talent. Is there any way you would care to coach him or be willing to? And I said, yeah, let me meet with him. And a uh, wonderful guy. And uh, we got along very well, went down to the track and uh, so we ended up going to the BC Games, and it, he won there. Uh, we worked. We focused on the mile and the 400 meters, and then we went to national games. He did very well there, made the team, and and won again. But uh, then we went down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, for the World Games, and lots of members of the Kennedy family and all sorts of film stars were there. So it was a glorious time for them in the parades and everything. Uh, but the most exciting thing were, for me was the fact that um, the local radio station had asked me to phone in uh, with details about what was going on, about the experience. We're in the stadium and uh, I'm down at the bottom screaming and yelling. And uh, here's Fred. He wins the uh, silver in the mile. Really excited because he knocked four seconds off his personal best. Then he does the 400 meters a couple of days later and wins the gold in a personal best. And uh, so I was ecstatic. And I just after the events, I'm phoning the radio station. The noise of the crowd was such that I couldn't hear what was being said on the, at the other end. <laughs> so I just said to them, well, look, guys, I can't hear you, but I'm going to tell you what's just happened anyway. So I, I gave them the story. When we arrived home and we had gone down with a group of uh, uh, about 20 people. Uh, others uh, were also Special Olympians but weren't necessarily doing the track and field. They hadn't made the team, but they came down with us to support Fred. And uh, when we arrived at Penticton Airport, the mayor and about three or 400 people were there to greet him. Wow. And then that year, he became the uh, Penticton Person of the Year. Amazing. Yeah. 
So wow. a very special story. And Fred's still doing very nicely. Well, this seems like a good place for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'll talk to Steve about how he became a race announcer. Actually, I decided to split Steve's interview over the first three episodes because there is such great content. So you can hear the rest in episodes two and three. And who out there doesn't love to hear a great Steve King story? Well, you're in luck. Steve has agreed to do a segment for me on each and every podcast. And I'm calling that segment Steve King Stories, of course. Steve has free reign to choose the stories he wants to tell. So in every episode, you'll be able to get another tidbit of ultra information from the voice of Ultraman. One more reason to subscribe to this podcast. Speaking of repeating segments, I also have a short called Crew Stories. What happens on the road gets told at the awards banquet. And now I want you to share those stories here. If you have a story from crewing or about someone who crewed for you at any ultra race, it doesn't have to be an Ultraman please send it to me at 515ultraman at gmail.com. And I will put it into one of our future episodes. All you have to do is make a voice recording on your phone, preferably using your headphone mic for good sound quality. Introduce yourself, introduce your athlete, what race it was at, and in what year. Then just go ahead and tell your story. You can also create a one-person Zoom meeting and use the recording there. If you send me that video, I can put that onto the Facebook page and help promote it. And here's our first cruise story by yours truly. I thought that I would be the first one to share a cruise story with you since that is my background in the ultra sport world. I have crewed nine 515 distance races and a number of ultra marathons. This particular story is from 2016. Myself, my recently ex-wife Lucy Ryan, and Katie Keeble, as she was known at the time, were crewing for UK athlete Ross Welton in the Ultra 520. Lucy and I had crewed for Ross in the same race the year previous, in which he unfortunately became ill on day one, and just finishing became his goal. And he did, barely. He had 16 minutes to spare on day three of the double marathon. So he had to come back in 2016 to get his revenge on the race. On day two of that one, on the bike course between Bromley Rock and Princeton, we, the crew, decided to hop out and get a shot on the GoPro of us cheering Ross as he whizzed by the crew vehicle. We were dialed in as a crew that year. The race was going great for Ross this time, and he was in the lead feeling great. I set up the GoPro on top of the van and we lined ourselves up to shoot a selfie as he flew by with a big thumbs up. We pile back into the van and get ready to drive ahead to Princeton to set up for a quick nutrition stop by the Petrocan gas station to prepare for the final out and back. This was going to be an actual stop for him with some solid food. Only, as we're pulling away, I hear the sound of the GoPro rolling along the roof and falling off the back of the van. I slammed on the brakes as quick as I could. We all piled out, and we started scouring the shoulder of the road, looking for the GoPro. Unfortunately, a GoPro is about the same size as many of the rocks on the side of the road. So at first, we ran back, desperately searching the shoulder. No luck. 
We walked back toward the van a little bit slower, looking carefully, still no luck. And I started getting a little bit concerned, not so much for the GoPro per se, but for the footage that would be lost. I knew Ross would be peed. Maybe when it hit the ground, it bounced off the shoulder and into the tall grass at the side of the road. So now we start looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack. Five minutes has passed and nothing. 10 minutes goes by and we're still not having any luck. After about maybe 15 minutes, we decide we can't leave Ross alone any longer and we need to go catch up. We're heading back to the van when I see on the back wiper blade, the little square GoPro sitting there. By the time we caught up with Ross, he was already through Princeton and we had missed that important nutrition stop and his bottle was dry. The good news is it did not put him into any deficit. Ross went on to finish day three as the champion and he ran the entire day three with my co-race director, Brad Sawa, who finished second overall in the race. Two years later, the four of us all reunited at the race to crew for Katie, now newly married and with the last name, Welton. Katie was the women's champion in 2018. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Ross's YouTube video channel, and then you'll be able to watch his video from that race and see the actual footage of the GoPro. In each episode, I want to do an athlete profile on one of the athletes who is competing at Ultraman Canada in July. My guest today has gone from overindulging in everything to balancing nearly everything. He's gone from being rad to epic. He's gone from being an athlete to a coach. He has competed in multiple Ultraman distance races and was the first Canadian to complete the Epic Five Challenge. Joining me from his home in Deep Cove, North Vancouver, Canada, a guy that I find to be incredibly positive and always a calming presence, I would like to welcome to the 515 Podcast my friend, Rad Chad Bentley. Welcome, Chad. Thanks for having me, Larry. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, this is awesome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to guess that it was your wife, Mary Jo, who came up with the moniker of Rad Chad as a way to uh, brand you a little bit, or is that an older nickname from way back when? No, it's actually uh, a friend of hers gave her a shirt that actually said Rad Chad on it. It was actually the country Chad in Africa. <laughs> and she just kind okay. of branded me with that, with that tagline, I guess, Rad Chad. So anybody that's listening to this that knows Mary Jo, she's, uh, that's, she's, a, she's in marketing and she's an ad copywriter. So everything has to be branded. And yeah, so yeah. it's stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely has stuck, I'd say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your, your call to ultra is, has come from a place that's not uncommon to a lot of people that are getting involved in Ironman and Ultraman circles. As I said in the intro, in the early 2000s, you were overindulging in pretty much everything. What was your life like in those days? Was it, was it totally rad for you at that time? No, it, it, my life was not rad in the, uh, I'm going to say in, in, in the, most of the nineties up into the early, early two thousands. Um, I was a heavy, heavy drinker, uh, you know, probably smoked one to two packs a day and 
by 2004, I was up, up to about 250 pounds. So it's, uh, um, emotional eating and self-sabotage, you know, basically self-abuse just to, uh, uh, you know, try to deal with, uh, certain mental health issues that aren't uncommon to people, um, certain levels of anxiety and depression. And, uh, so yeah, I had to, had to make a dramatic shift in my life. And, uh, that shift was towards health and wellness. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when I look through the applications of people applying for Ultraman, I, even in the last year and a half, there's probably been four applications that have that same background of people yeah. that were way off the other side. And then, you know, they, they had to turn their life around and then maybe they turn their addictions in a different way towards sport and, and, and things like that. Um, so I, I think where you're coming from is not uncommon with the, with the Iron Man crowd and, and the people that have that same mentality. Yeah. There was one evening I was, uh, uh, my wife and I ended up on the East coast of Canada and we were at a wedding and I noticed around this wedding that nobody would smoke. So I'd sneak away and have a cigarette. I'd be all by myself, just, you know, too embarrassed to actually smoke in front of anybody. And that was the early two thousands where it was starting to, you know, smoking wasn't acceptable, yeah. but anyway, I was sitting there having dinner with a couple that I didn't know. And for some reason I had ordered a surf and turf meal. I had an appetizer and I had two pints of beer. And this stranger said to me, he goes, Hey buddy, do you ever worry about having a heart attack? And that, well, it was 2004. And that's when I, I had this extreme embarrassment that came over me and I felt like I had just hit rock bottom. That was it for me. And, mm -hmm. uh, that was, that was the pain that actually got me to, uh, look at, at, finding a little purpose in my life and, and shifting my life. It was uh, in 2005, I did the CIBC run for the cure of 5k and that actually changed my life. A, a 5k run changed your life. For a CIBC run for the cure downtown Vancouver. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, all these people running and the crowds and everything. This, this is great. And then from there, I never, I never looked back. You know, I, I, Wanted to meet new people, so I joined a triathlon club. I was living in the Tri-Cities at the time in Port Moody, and uh, I met such a great group of athletes there. There's some amazing, some, uh, an amazing uh, uh, triathletes that come from Port Moody and Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, and all that area. And, and these, uh, these, are, these are areas that are the suburbs of Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so I met some new people and started training, you know, open water swim training and biking. And, and I got the opportunity to spend the night in line signing up for Ironman. I think that might've been the last year that people were doing that. It was for the 25th anniversary. Yes. And, that was uh, a big race. Yeah. On my triathlon memories, I just absolutely loved uh, that year leading up to the 2007 Ironman Canada. It was just, it was phenomenal. And obviously that also relates to the idea of what it's like to go to Penticton for, for the Ironman and, and the beauty of that course. And, and our Ultraman course obviously uses much of that as well. And everybody's so happy that the Ironman Canada has moved back to Penticton again. And well, I'd say most people are happy that it's moved back to Penticton again. <laughs> and, you know, Ultraman's been happening there since 1993 as well. And, and you just, you can feel it in the city 
that, that oh. it's a it's a tri city. It is, yeah, yeah. Penticton's a second home for me, so it, I spend a lot of time there. And and when you pull into town, it definitely has this feeling. There's there's some like the athletes that are you know hovering around, and I know there are Olympi- there are Olympians that live there, and these unbelievable like local triathletes. It's just it's super impressive. Yeah. And, and you and I, we, we met in 2013. Um, you were talking about all the great people that you met in the Tri-Cities um, Club. And one of those people is my ex-wife, Lucy Ryan. And she was doing Ultraman Canada. And I don't know if you had signed up for the race at this point or you were just thinking about doing it. I, was, I think I was up in Penticton and Lucy needed somebody last minute to crew oh, with okay. you. Yeah, yeah, and I was obviously there, yeah. I had heard of the race, but to be honest with you, I always thought there's no way I could do that race. That's what I, you know, that's, I still had doubts about my athletic abilities, I guess, as far as endurance goes. Yeah. And, uh, but I got the opportunity to come and crew with you and, and witness firsthand uh, what that race had to offer. And, and uh, I remember how blown away I was watching Lucy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Lucy was the one that actually introduced me to to the uh, the ultra world. So and and she will totally tell everybody as well. She wants to claim credit for what you've become in the ultra world by saying that she's the one who got you hooked. I think she introduced Brad to it too, didn't she? No, but Lucy and I crewed for Brad in 2012 when he did his yeah. first. So thanks, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Lucy. You got your shout out on the on the chat episode. <laughs> All right, so Chad, you you did four uh, Ultraman distance races, including the Worlds in 2016, and we've talked about the following year in 2014 after you crewed in 2013. Uh, oh, by the way, for, for anybody that does want to come out and do the race, that is the way to do it. Come out and crew first, see what this is all about, and find out the little secrets and tidbits that you want to do. Like, would you suggest that that would also be the best way to do it? Oh, yeah. It is, it's, it's, you know, very insightful into the race, but it is a blast and you walk away and when you're done, you feel like you've made all these new friends from all over the world. So yeah, you just get to enjoy it in another way as, as a crew member versus as an athlete. Yeah. You feel sad when the weekend's over, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you you go through your other Ultraman races. You're you're building up, and then you decide that um, Rad Chad's not enough. You got to be Epic Chad, and you sign up to do the Epic Five Challenge in Hawaii. Um, can you just give us a quick Coles notes or Cliff notes on what that event is and and how it works? Uh, the Epic Five is it's five Ironmans in five days on five different Hawaiian islands. So, and you, you bring a crew with you and Lucy, she came over with me and she was my crew chief. And, uh, who and, else was uh, on that crew? Let's give some shout outs to the rest of your crew. Yeah. There. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, uh, Dana Montgomery and Rich, her husband, Rich, um, Rich Fraser and Matt Hill. And, uh, it was, it was, it was a good time. I got to say there were some extreme highs and uh, extreme lows, but it was, uh, uh, it was the, I, I wouldn't change anything that happened because it, it built, I think it added a little bit of character, you know, to, to myself, 
just from the things that we all went through. Right. And so yeah. and it was, and it was super in, in, a, in a race like that, obviously just completing each day in the required time is a huge challenge. But because you're also island hopping and going to a new island every day, you also have a ton of race logistics that you have to take care of. These are major factors that will determine your success or not. So what sorts of things do you need to work out or does your crew need to work out as far as keeping all of that kind of thing in the background working so that you can successfully do your swim bike run each day. Yeah. The, the, the crewing aspect of that race is, is it's unbelievable. I mean, how hard the people actually have to work and the lack of sleep that they get. So yeah, you, you, you know, you you travel over there with your bike and it's packed in your bike box and you have all your, all your gear that you need to do an Ironman in each of those five days. But at the end of each day, you know, you have, you have crew support or bike support with the race. And at the end of the day, they rip your bike apart and you have to, you have to take it with you from island to island. So, and then you have to clean out your crew vehicle. So, but when you're done, uh, one of the days as the athlete, you want to just eat as much as you possibly can, um, get ready to get on the plane the next morning, uh, and then make sure that you're restocked again for fuel. Yeah. So then the crew is obviously un totally unpacking and repacking the entire thing. Yeah, that's yeah. that's quite the undertaking. Yeah, you don't you don't get there and then check into your nice condo. It's basically <laughs> <laughs> you get off the plane, you go straight to the start, you, you do your swim, and that, that you know, while the swim's going on, they get organized for the ride and then and then as the day progresses or as the race progressed, you uh you know, you tried the, the crew members would try to kind of swap their time out so they could rest and 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 whatnot so but it was uh it was interesting it, it's a it's a major role to go over there and, and crew for that race yeah yeah now when you make that jump from going from Ironman to Ultraman obviously you're going to ramp up your mileage and your training a little bit to to handle those new distances is there another jump to train for doing these five Ironmans in a row? Is it, is it the difference of having like one kid and then two and everything's exponentially harder, but then if you get to like three or more, it's really, it's not any more work. Like, is it, is it more training or at that point you're like, mm, no. Just, uh, I just worked off of that existing, existing endurance base and picked out, uh, I think I had three, big blocks that I did. So I would pick a, a, a three separate weeks out of my training, uh, overall training plan. And then I would do some big swims, big bikes, followed by big runs, always did big brick days. Yeah. Yeah. So um, those, those brick workouts are, are key to, to getting into that kind of time and distance. Yeah. And you know, when I look back on it, I mean, the only thing that really got me through Epic five was probably the mind more than anything. <laughs> I mean, the, the body was so beat up, you know, it's, it's just, you know, are you going to quit or are you just going to keep going? Right. You just make that decision. And the decision was just to keep going. And, and, and that's, and that's what happens with ultra athletes, right? Is the mind is the, the most powerful tool that you have as far as getting through these races and, and the people that do ultra, they have that. And the ones that, don't have that don't do ultra <laughs> you know yeah. like so um now that you've brought that up what uh 
what was what were some of those like opportunities where you had to use your 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 mind to to get you've had a number of trials in this race and hopefully we can get into a few of those but since you've brought up the the mental aspect of it maybe just tell us a little bit about where where you were with your your mental training and then how that got you over a particular hump if you had a story for that yeah i mean I could, I, I mean, as far as the, the, the whole Epic five started off on a, uh, an interesting, uh, level with the, with the weather. Yeah. You had mother so, nature against you before the race even started. Yeah. It was during hurricane season. So when I was leaving Vancouver to go to Hawaii, my, my flight actually got delayed because hurricane lane was going through Hawaii. So mm-hmm. we were, I was concerned it wasn't even going to happen. I thought they were going to cancel it. And so, I mean, I got my way to Oahu and then by that time it was tropical storm lane. So, um, so we spent one night, um, in, in Oahu and then we flew to Kauai the next morning. And by the time we got to Kauai, it was full on tropical storm. It was, there were flood alerts on our phones, uh, you know, pounding wind and and rain. Like I'd never seen before. It was insane. I was like, this is, this is crazy. (laughs) And, uh, so they had to adjust the race and they made it a pool swim. And, uh, we did nine 20 kilometer loops on the bike. And then we ran five K loops around a golf course. So right off the bat, that's, that kind of messes with you mentally. Yeah. Trying, trying to do those laps and seeing the same thing and keeping track of the laps and where am I? Well, this is not what I planned for. This is not, that's not the race that I mentally prepared for. Everybody's like, oh, you're going to be doing an Ironman on, on Kauai. It's where they filmed Jurassic Park. It's going to be spectacular. You know, all the, <laughs> all the, you know, all the vegetation around Hawaii. Well, I, I didn't really get to see that. Mm-hmm. I was riding through puddles that were like two feet deep <laughs> and like it were floods. Like it, it was insane. I ripped my good pair of bike shoes in half. Like they were so wet. They were old. I should have, but they were so comfortable. And, right. and uh, so anyway, by the time that day ended, and uh, by the time it ended, actually, the sun had come out like it was it was drying up. And uh, but my feet were from the humidity and all that rain. My feet were like I sat in a bathtub for, you know, 24 hours. Like it was you could have right. felt it. You could have taken the skin and just peeled them right off the bottoms of my feet. Yeah, it was crazy. So right from day one, I was screwed with blisters. Right. Yeah. And it was there was just I mean, what were you going to do? I was it was just it was painful. So, you know, you wrap up your feet every day as much as you can and you, you just get out there and get them warm and just keep going. <laughs> so, um, it, you, you're having this one image in your mind of, oh, I'm going to go to Hawaii. It's going to be beautiful. I'm going to do these five Ironmans. And then it's completely turned on its head. It's pouring rain. You're going through the puddles your feet turn into little stumps that are falling apart and you got to get up and start race number two. Yeah. Where, so where, where, where do you get the mental fortitude then to say, I'm going to power through this? Like what's going through your mind? Yeah. So, so that, so that too, when we were done in Kauai, right as soon as we finished day one, we only had time to go through a drive through at McDonald's, which I do not eat anymore. And we ran through McDonald's and, and, uh, the only thing, you know, I'll eat, uh, I'll eat fish once in a while. And so you flay a fish to fuel you up for the next morning and <laughs> straight to the airport. That's it. 
So you, you throw on your compression pants and you're sitting there in the, on the, on the, uh, you know, lying down on the floor of the airport. And then you get to the next Island. By the time you check into your condo, it was, I think it was one in the morning. It's crazy. And, and then and this is why at, people call it Epic, right? Yeah. And then you're up at, I think we were probably up by the crew got up a little bit before me, but we were probably on the road by four thirty-five in the morning heading to the swim start. Yeah. So, you know, ha- having that new, being on a new Island, that kind of gives you that motivation Well, you're going to have new scenery and the weather was better. So that was like, okay, let's, let the, let's get this going. So but they, you, you take more of a, this is a fresh start attitude to it rather than yeah. I'm in the hole now because of what happened yesterday. Yeah. And you're, and you're also looking forward to doing a, a, a nice ocean swim and it was in a nice protected area. Uh, so that was, that was really appealing as well. And that, you know, you go for a nice swim in the salt water wakes you up and you yeah. feel a lot better. So, but day two turned out to be super tough. Like day one was actually easier because day two, I got lost for. <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> heard you kidding. actually got lost a few times during the race. Oh yeah. Like completely lost, went the wrong way. I don't know how many kilometers I would have added on. But I think probably in total, probably got lost for, I, I'm, if I can remember correctly, it was, you know, easily over two hours. Mm. So, and then I got lost coming right, going back into transition to transition into the run. I got lost, didn't know where to go. Couldn't find my crew. I had to go into a Starbucks, borrow a guy's phone, <laughs> a, a tourist that was using my phone, Mary Joe in Vancouver and get, I think it was Matt, Maddie's uh, phone number and find out where they were. And they were literally like maybe 500 meters away from me. <laughs> but you had to do the, the call to Vancouver to, to find out they were 500 meters away. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I got to say, I, ha- I was a little bit down at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like, what, what the hell am I doing? This is, this is crazy. And, and the bike ride was really tough. Like, it was just wind, like. I don't know, people that have, people be listening to this that have done, you know, Ironman in Hawaii and, and whatnot. I mean, it's just, it's a windy place when you're riding along the ocean. So it it was, it's just, it wasn't easy. So, yeah, but it it worked out okay. And got under the run. Yeah. And, and you get through your, your, your five days and you, you have a few more trials and, but you get to the finish line and it's a, it's a grand finish line, right? Like there's like, thousand people there lined up and cheering and there's like music playing like what's the finish line like uh two people holding uh like a, a finish tape you know up and you just cross it and there's two people there that's it you're just in the <laughs> middle of the neighborhood somewhere <laughs> <laughs> so you're not doing it for the glory no there's there's nobody cheering you on so yeah i did speak with lucy about your race uh, prior and and she said that you were like you know as you said wrapping up your feet and and taking care of things after the race and 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 you were talking about how hard it was and that it was so hard and there were so many trials that you loved it and it was like your most favorite race ever <laughs> is, is it, was that a fair statement did she did she get that right yeah, you know it. It was. Uh, it's interesting because on on the fourth day on Maui, I think I had like three flat tires on the way back. So it was a big out and back for the bike ride. So then, 
it's pitch black. It's probably, I think it was, it was probably around 10 at night, end up getting like four flat tires. You know, you got lights, you got these big lights on your bike and everything like that. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I felt like I was almost on a high stopping right. helping fix the flats. Like I, I wasn't getting down or anything. It made me, it almost energized me. Yeah. You know, it was just, so, so the more adversity you faced, the, the better the race got. Yeah. And you know, it's, and, and I had, I was raising money for charity as well. So I picked a charity for a, di- a different charity for each Ironman or each right. iron distance uh, day. So I would think of, you know, like Terry Fox, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I was, you know, I dedicated one of the islands to the Terry Fox foundation and it just, you know, it, it kept me going. It was, it was a motivation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, if that guy could run across Canada, you know, attempt it with cancer in one leg, yeah. I can sure do this. Yeah. So, and, and for anybody listening from outside of Canada or might not know the Terry Fox story is uh, Terry was just a, a young man who uh, lost a, a leg to cancer and he came up with this idea that he, he was pretty sure he wasn't going to survive too long, um, but he wanted to make sure that others would and he wanted to draw attention to cancer. And so he came up with this idea of running across Canada and it was called the Marathon of Hope because each day he would run a full marathon and then go find some place to sleep. And then then uh, the story is he would put down like a can or a, a shoe or something on the side of the road. And then the next day he would go back to that exact point on the road and continue his journey. Yeah, I can see how Terry Fox would be a great inspiration to just continue your journey no matter what you were facing. Yeah, yeah, it was... Actually, I, I I had dedicated day five, so the final Ironman to the Terry Fox Foundation. It was it was for, I can't, it was was it called Profile, and it was actually for um, uh, uh, for kids cancer. It was through the Terry Fox Foundation. I can't remember what what it stands for now, but it was like, you know, I think eleven o'clock at night, biking down the Queen K Highway, and it's. <laughs> you're all alone. All you can see are headlights coming up at you and you're in lava fields. Yeah. Yeah. You need something to keep you going. (laughs) (laughs) And that was another time when, when your wife was supporting you and uh, she kind of took care of all the, the fundraising side of that for you, right? Like it's a little family affair. Yeah, she did. She's, she's great at that. So she, you know, yeah, she helped me get it all set up and, and, you know, help me raise the, the funds and, you know, help throw a party and everything like that. So yeah, she, she's spectacular, that kind of stuff. Yeah. She, she's a multi-talented woman and I should probably point out at this point that I also appreciate her talents because she is the introductory voice of this podcast. So thank you very much, Mary Jo. One of the things I'm hoping to do with the podcast is to make sure that while we get to hear about these great races, like you've done in Epic Five, we also get to know a little bit about you as a person. When we all meet together at Ultraman Canada, we have a little bit of background. So I'm going to go into a second part of this interview where we learn a little more about you personally. And in between, we're going to do some rapid fire questions with rapid fire answers. I'm calling that two minutes in transition to get us to the other side. How many bikes do you own? Uh, let me see here. One, two, three, four bikes. Four bikes. <laughs> and, and what's your favorite or your sexiest bike that you have? 
Wow, my my favorite bike. My favorite bike right now is my uh, my mountain bike that I just picked up. But uh, I haven't bought a new triathlon bike since 2008. Oh, you're due. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I usually just go with the try to get the legs in shape. But but I, I love my bike, my my tri bike. Mm. It's a Kyoto Caliber. Bought it in 2008. It's now permanently attached to my trainer, but because uh, it's it's done, I have to get a new one this year. All right. <laughs> what 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 is the last piece of gear you purchased? Last piece of gear I purchased, um, yeah, probably a new set of Hoka's. Okay. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's what you go with the Hoka. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your go-to workout music? Uh, usually, I put uh, I don't work out the music. I put a. a a podcast on or an audiobook. Okay. Right. What's the last one you listened to? Uh, last the Longevity Paradox. Yeah. And what's the last thing that you binged on Netflix? Well, I'm watching it called Your Honor on HBO right now. Oh right, yes. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they only release seven episodes, so oh. I don't okay. know, Larry. I've watched so much lately. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone. <laughs> All right, yep. we're down to the last question because we're out of time. Uh, what do you like to do for fun that does not involve swim, bike, run, or other training? Uh, well, lately, it just, you know, because we can't socialize, I like to kick back with Mary Jo and maybe have a glass of wine. Mm. Yeah. That's what and, I like. And, and that leads perfectly into the second segment of our interview where we start talking yeah. a little bit about more of your family life. So, yeah. I know that your biggest cheerleaders are obviously the ladies of your life, your, your wife, Mary Jo, and your two daughters. So uh, I just wanted to give you a second to give a little shout out to them, maybe do a little daddy brag, tell us what they're into, how you spend time with them in the home life right now, and uh, tell, tell, tell us what their names are, of course. Okay, well, my wife, Mary Jo, which I've been talking, you know, I've been talking about her, <laughs> and I have uh, an eight-year-old daughter, um, Juju, that's actually a nickname. Her name's uh, Magella, but it's her nickname, Juju. Everybody calls her Juju. And uh, and little Burgess, and everybody calls her Birdie. And she's five. Yeah. And uh, we are kept very, very busy. So whether it's, we're at the pool probably right now with, with I think, five times a week between swim team and diving mm-hmm. for my eight-year-old. And then she's in gymnastics as well. And then my youngest daughter is in cheer and gymnastics. So it's, it's every night of the week, there's something. And I can't say I'm the one taking them to everything. So Mary Jo's pretty busy. She's, yeah, she's driving a lot right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. That's the young child life. Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you balance those things? You know, like you're, you're, you're a real family, man. You, you balance your family, you have your, your full-time training, you work, you have more than one job. So, um, how, how do you find balance in all of those things? Well, you know, there, I, as far as, uh, uh, balancing everything out, I mean, the kids have to come first. So it's kind of work around their schedule now, but mind you, we have a great schedule. So it's easily and and obviously and and communicating with Mary Jo is super important to make sure that we can get everything in that we want to do personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm lucky with my 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 career, um, I can sneak away during the day and hit the pool or go for a run 
Um, right. And, and, yeah. and, and what is it that you're, that you're doing that allows you to sneak away during the day? What, what pays for all these triathlons that you do? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a part owner um, in a power line construction company. So I do project management. I'm an executive in, in the organization. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my day, day job. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's, it's getting busier and busier. So we've, we've, we have this business It's my brothers and I, we grew it from, you know, f- uh, a small business to getting on the high side of the medium sized business <laughs> in the last, you know, five years. Oh yeah. So You're a little upper middle busy. class now. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting busier and busier and, and, uh, you know, and the kids are getting, well, as they get older and, and I mean, you know, you've, you've, yeah. you've, when the kids get older, it gets busier. So, mm-hmm. um, as far as training goes, I'm not one of those guys that pulls off these 20 hour, 25 hour weeks. You do what you can yeah. and, uh, you go out and you participate and you hope things go well. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and, and, and that's, and that's a great attitude. That's, that's a great way to, uh, keep your, your balance in your life so that things don't, don't get out of balance. And, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the interview, how things can get out of balance and you can overindulge in things. And, and you've obviously come to a place in your life where you've got that balance now and you don't overindulge in any way other than maybe in your family. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when you're, you could be out for those long bike rides and you start to have a little bit of guilt that hits you that you should be at home with the family or, then, you know, you got to adjust and maybe it means getting up at five in the morning and doing your workouts and, you know, right. you get it done. I, I do that too. I get up early and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you, you get your workouts done before the family's really up and running. And so. yeah. And I, I think that's, that's a great tip. And, uh, probably a lot of people that are getting into the ultra distance are definitely utilizing that tip as well. And if they're not, there's, there's one for them. Yeah. There's definitely enough time to, to get everything done. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about that because like I I did mention, I, I do like to finish off my evenings with, you know, nine o'clock. I like to be on the couch watching an hour of TV before bed. That's, that's just the way I unwind from the day. Yeah. And, uh, so there is a lot of time in the day where, where you can get ready to, or get set up to achieve all the goals that you want to do. That's for yeah. And, and that's part of what you do now as one of your other jobs that you're doing. And that is coaching people, not, not in the physical sense. Uh, you're not a triathlon coach, like many athletes go into triathlon coaching, but you do have a coaching business as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's funny. As, as soon as you bring up uh, that you're a coach, people auto, automatically presume that, uh, that I'd be a triathlon coach, but I'm not, a, I would consider myself, a, you know, leadership coach or mental coach, breakthrough coach. Um, I'm a master uh, practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming and timeline therapy. Oh, hold on. Wait, you don't, you don't just throw out a line like neuro-linguistic timeline therapy without uh, giving a little definition for us there, please. So what, what exactly does that entail? I'll say neuro-linguistic programming is, is, uh, is kind of, it could be success modeling, um, helping people communicate better with themselves, you know, as Mm -hmm. individuals and we all face it, especially if there's a little bit of mental health issues in there, 
you know, maybe some mild forms of depression or anxiety or something. It's, it could, it could go back to the, the stories that you tell yourself. Everybody gets down on themselves. I would say your mind can be your worst enemy or your best friend, mm-hmm. right? It's if all these unconscious thoughts that we have throughout the day, a lot of them could automatically be filtered through your brain and come in, in the form of, of, of negative thoughts. Right. Yeah. And, so, and a lot of people have those so regularly that they don't even realize what is going on as far as those neural pathways being connected. Yeah. And, and you become, you become so conditioned to it and you're, you know, and then you, all your, your belief systems and everything take more of a darker side than looking to the bright side of life. Right. And, and we've already talked about how you got through Epic five by just taking that path. So how do you, how do you help other people find that path then? How does this therapy work? Well, it's program work. Well, it's so, so with uh, neuro-linguistic programming there, it's that communication with yourself. And then there's timeline therapy, which is um, shedding negative emotions. So everybody carries um, the five foundational negative emotions in your nervous system, which is anger, sadness, fear, hurt, and guilt. So it's just this, uh, uh, a series of visualizations that help you get over those negative emotions. And then once you shed those, you can move into limiting decisions and limiting beliefs about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and really it's a matter of committing to changing your thought process. I think it's, it's that, it really is that simple. So, so with your, uh, with your program then, is there, is there a way, do you have a website right now that if people listening wanted to check it out and learn more about it, where, where could they check that out? Yeah, I have a website, chadbentley.com. And, good name, uh, good name. Yeah. That, that, that must have been branded by Mary Jo. <laughs> I've changed the name a few times. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to uh, end off with one last question, and this is something that I think is really important for the listeners, that when they come to this podcast, obviously they want to hear these stories about these great epic races like Epic Five, and they want to hear about some of the fantastic people that you meet and and stories like you've told us today, and thank you for that. And I think they also want to get some, you know, just tangible advice about either training or racing. And now that you've experienced as much as you have, looking back for the... Iron Man, who's ready to move up now to Ultraman, what would be your best piece of advice that you could give someone about training or racing that you either discovered on your own or that you got from someone else? Um, I mean, I, I've, I've had, uh, as far as the training goes, I, I've had the same coach for close to a decade. His name's Sean Callahan. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a great coach. Um, so he, he would guide me through, you know, these big heavy blocks and then, you know, the rest periods and everything like that. But, you know, I, I think when, if you want to transition from Ironman into the ultra world, I think that people shouldn't overthink it and don't think it's going to take up that much more time than training for an Ironman. And, uh, you know, don't be afraid to just dive in there and, and test yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've often said, every, I think every time I've gone up at the awards banquet and you have to give a little speech, I always, always 
say that I don't care if I ever do another Ironman again. I would just, I'd rather just do ultras, right. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so if, if somebody's thinking about making that transition from Ironman into the ultra world, you know, I just say go for it and uh, you will not regret it and you'll love it. I, I guarantee you'll love it more than doing Ironman. Well, Chad, I, I want to thank you very much for your, your time today, for, for doing this interview and, and sharing your stories uh, and being being nice and open with uh, all of the things that you wanted to talk about and that I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's been a great conversation and I'm just still learning how to do these podcasts. So I'm willing to have you back and do this again when I'm really good at it and you've got some more new well, stories. Right. I've done a few podcasts and uh, this is right at the top. I, I actually really enjoyed it. So, and you're naturally good at it, buddy. Just like you're, you're a freaking awesome race director. So. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that compliment. And let's give your wife the last word on this episode. Hey, if you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you'd rate and review the show while you're there. Drop the names of the people you think we should interview and we'll get in touch with them and make that happen. Thank you for listening to 515, the Ultraman podcast, a production of 55 Enterprises brought to you by Ultraman Canada. Now really, go, go subscribe now before you forget. <laughs>